What a pleasure, I have to say. Here I am again with Michael Smith, uh, my mentor, my inspiration at many different points in my life. And uh, here we are for a second chat. Hoping to pick up on some of the uh, ideas we didn't get to last time. How are you today? I'm good. Beautiful day. Yeah, sure yeah. is. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Nice. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to possibly slow us down a little bit at the start, just to just to share uh, one or two slides. So, when I woke up before our last talk, which was maybe two years ago, I woke up that morning and I listed uh, a huge, humongous list of ideas, concepts, phrases that I remembered from uh, my time working with and then training under you. And we didn't get to all of them at all, but we did get to quite a bit. And I think this is a pretty representative list of the things we talked about last time. And uh, I will encourage anybody who's watching this to check out that, uh, that first round. But um, today I have a couple, couple new topics that I think would probably work pretty well. These are leftovers from the last list. And I think the ones at the top might work uh, as like maybe a, a talking point. After, after we just talk about briefly your, your, uh, your new book that's coming out soon. So if you don't mind, would you, would you tell us just a little bit about the background of this book and maybe we, maybe we can get into some of these concepts? Sure. Um, well, Jeff and Hugh and Deborah and I were um, all had sort of a different tipping point for us about how we recognized that we needed to do more than complain about the proliferation of fake news or information pollution or new propaganda, well, however you want to phrase it and do something to, um, to, to address it. And the, the start of the book was, it's kind of an easy thing to, to say, we need to do more than, um, but I think that, I think that it doesn't recognize, I mean, you're, you're a teacher, you know, you're already doing enough, right? And so the idea of adding this, I mean, many and many of the people who advocate for this advocate for you know major curricular sort of interventions that address this this issue. But I found um, we found a couple of things. One is that, or we started with a belief in a couple of things. One is that teachers are already so busy, mm -hmm. and so telling them you need to do this new thing, people were not going to do it unless they could be linking it to something that they already did in some meaningful kind of way. And then secondly, that the idea of critical reading or critical writing, plus critical reading is different across different kinds of reading. It's similar, but, but different because the texts that promulgate information pollution are different kinds of texts that work similarly but in different kind of ways. So that's what that was sort of the genesis of the project. And then each of us working with kids who um, I, I don't know who who manifested a need for this kind of instruction. So my little story was um, working with in a college access program, working with a student who was persuaded by a for-profit college that that's the college he should apply to, not being sort of persuaded to do so by um, by the 
you know, the materials, the publication material, the, the, the publicity materials that he had been sent by that, by that school. There's one of those schools where their students came out with debt primarily. And so when you're talking, when you're working with a kid who's first generation, it's going to be the first student to go to college to send him, to, for him to go to one of those schools. Yeah. Seemed, seemed crazy. Now, that, that seems like a little story in some kind of ways. Um, we also had students, I also had one student who, you name the, you name the conspiracy and he was, he was into it. Um, and so that, that's, that idea is as well. So we, each of us had a sort of a tipping point that said we need to start up attending to this yeah. um, a bit more than we currently do. So that was sort of the genesis of the project. Awesome. Let me say one other thing is that the other issue that we, um, that we thought was true is that most most of the programs with which we're familiar, most of the interventions with we're, with we're familiar, focus on what fake news is and how it works, not what in an individual makes people, what makes me susceptible to being, to falling victim to fake news or information. So uh, we wanted to write something that would, that would address those issues as well, not just what it is, and what you need to do is, but how, looking inwards and to find out your areas of susceptibility and nice. and how you might want to address those. Yeah, that's that's a personal interest of mine. That's good to hear. Yeah, because I didn't know anything about the book until you just started telling me now. So uh, we'll probably not talk mainly about the book today, but uh, by all means, infuse it in as we move forward. Okay. If you don't mind, I just to stay on the fake news topic just a bit longer. Um, I just want to tell you a couple of, I guess, maybe where I am at, as far as my understanding of the concept, which is pretty minimal. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe that could fuel something moving forward. You could correct me, of course. Um, I believe it came into popularity, that term, right around 2015, 16 or so, pre, pre that election. Um, I believe it's used often, I guess, on different sides of like, mostly in the political sphere, but not, not always, but it often gets politicized. And the term is used often by people on different sides, but they might not have the same exact context for how they're using it. But it is, you know, it is used as a, as a weapon, as a slur, and often as an accurate, uh, accurate statement. I think, uh, I think like, say like the people who from the start thought that Trump was going to be attacked no matter what. Like that was like the plan was to like get rid of the guy by any means necessary. Or the people who thought like that this was like the worst threat to the country. I don't believe either of those people had much reason to abandon like their points of view since I guess since that time to now, largely because of like this fake news concept. So does that sound like a somewhat well, accurate? I, I mean, I think that there are, I think that there are different positions about what it is. Uh, um, mm -hmm. So uh, on the one hand, it would, it, it might mean, I mean, th there's a range. And on one hand, it might mean news I don't like. Yeah. A little bit less. It might be news that I find biased in some fashion or, or another. Um, uh, news that's consistent with somebody's predisposition to believe a certain way. I mean, those are mm. 
but those are different from the sort of deep fake videos that are that yeah. are you know digital texts that are deliberately created to deceive so so i mean so one of the things that we that we there's so there's this range and when people talk about disinformation malinformation so there there there's a different range of things yeah, so, yeah. so we we i think we need to be alert to to all of them to the extent that we can and, and help our students you know come to understand these these differences and i mean and that's one of the differences you know when we're one of the things that was um that we we're thinking about is the, the issue of of transfer about applying skills and strategies that you have in one domain to a, to another mm. and so one might think that um that if you're reading an ironic text an ironic literary text that that would transfer or that would be at those skills those critical reading skills would be able to be immediately applicable to this new arena mm. one of the dif differences that we've say is that in a literary text the most meaningful reading happens when you recognize that the source of that you're meant to recognize that the source of information is flawed we're meant to recognize that hawk finn is uh, is a flawed source of information or, or the famous first person narrative narratives narrators in the digital domain we're often not we're often meant not to I mean, they're deliberately deceptive as opposed to being on surface deceptive, if you will. So, so, so we need to do a different kind of work then um, that we can't count on things happening sort of automatically, if you will. And I, I, I'm, um, I know in my own teaching, I'm probably too sanguine about how readily transfer happens, even though my whole story is my whole story is that I went back to get my PhD because I was worried about just that issue. I, mean, I, I got, when I was a high school teacher, I was reasonably confident, maybe shouldn't have been, but I was confident that when I was teaching my students to write, when we were working on a paper, an argument or a narrative paper, for example, that I was teaching them to write more than a particular paper on which they were working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when I was teaching literature, I was not confident at all that I was doing more than help them understand the particular book that we were working on. And so mm. that became an unsustainable thing for me. Um, so I, I went back to study to try to think about how I could design instruction that would make it more likely that what students were learning in one sort of textual encounter they were transferring, they would be able to apply to, to the next one. Um, so anyway, so that issue of transfer has been something um, and I know that that's sort of an old-fashioned term, but it's still the one that I use, is that the ap application or, or the appropriation, Peter Smags, uh, Smagorinsky wants to say the appropriation of one, something that you learn in one sort of circumstance mm. and applying it to another. Um, so anyway. Yeah, and I know, I remember either you or uh, Jeff Wilhelm would use phrases like, like uh, certain heuristics that you could move around or portable problem solving sets. Or yeah. are, are, are these terms that still work as far as how you think about transfer, be it a high, like kind of high road or low road transfer? Well, yeah, I mean, the difference between high road, this is from a, a David Perkins paper uh, and Gabrielle Solomon, 
who wrote about, I mean, higher, low road transfer is transfer where things, situations are sufficiently similar that the transfer happens automatically. Mm. And I think the example that they give is if you if you're given if you're given text, you in some ways you start to read it. Um, the example that I give when I'm talking about it in class is that I drive a Mini Countryman. If you toss me the keys to your Mini Cooper and it was the same year, I could just jump in, the, hop in the car, and and drive it. Mm-hmm. If you toss me the keys to a bus, I couldn't. I would have uh-huh. to. Step back. I would have to have a conscious control of what I was of what I was going to do, and so the, the the mindful awareness of what of an approach that you're taking to a problem solving behavior, that mind the further you move something that you need to move something that the most more dissimilar the contexts are, the more conscious awareness you have of what you're transferring. That's why um, same thing would happen in t- in teaching. If I'm teaching into very similar like your. Um, I don't know, your second period class, you probably transfer what you you learned from your second period to your third period without thinking too much about it. But if you were saying, what am I doing with my eighth, sixth graders? And say that you're going to do professional development for your colleagues. Yeah. You might say, okay, what are the, what you would have to say something like, what are the, are the principles that I believe obtain? Are there understandings that I believe that obtain across these, across this, educational context so that I can apply what I've learned in one context to this new context. So, um, mm-hmm. so that, that seems, that seems to me, and, and if you believe that, um, that teaching should be future oriented, that's the question that you have to ask yourself. What am I, what are we doing today? That's going to help them do something new or different t- tomorrow. Um, and I, as I said, I, I'm afraid that too often we think it's stuff is going to happen automatically when it doesn't. Yes. Um, I have like five questions now. One of them was, you, so you went back to school to be more conscious about developing this type of transfer. Yeah. And did you find out that, uh, well, did you get good at it, would you say? And to what extent does that, to what extent does that fuel like what you do? Uh, you know, generally, does it fuel your work? Well, and what did so, you find out? So what I just what I I mean initially when I started to think about the focus was was teaching literature. So what I tried to understand is how do experience um, how do experienced readers read and talk about texts so that if I could name those things, then I might be able to then I might be able to teach them. So for example. Um, I did work in uh, my dissertation was about reading. It's called giving short people uh, reading and teaching irony and poetry, giving short people a reason to live. And it's built on, it's built around the idea of different cues that Wayne Booth has identified in a, a red, in a rhetoric of irony that experienced readers use to understand um, that we should be suspicious. I mean, they're just easy. We have, as experienced readers, we have hot buttons that mm-hmm. we um, that we use to make a judgment about whether a narrator, how much to trust the narrator, right? If so, if the narrator is too young, we're li- at least a little bit suspicious. If the narrator is too self-interested, we're a little bit suspicious. The narrator's immoral, we're suspicious. All of those things. But if we could, if I can name those things, then I can create experiences to help my students understand them as well. So this. This would be, um, 
And so what I was trying to do is trying to think about that and then think about the way that people use and talk about literature. Let me let me give you one example. I think that um, I did a study of adult book clubs where one of the things that was interesting to me is that the conversation in adult book clubs, for the most part, did not move on the basis of questions. It moved on the basis of statements. So, I mean, that's a, that's sort of a challenge to us mm -hmm. as, as teachers because we, the sort of the, the primary tool or a primary tool that literature teachers use is the question. But in the world, we ask some questions, but for the most part, we make statements. You, this is a little bit, an interview is a little bit different context, but if you and yeah. I were talking about a book, when we were, when we had the Vygotsky seminar, you would say something, then I would say something, then Sharon would say something, and then, and there would be follow-up questions, maybe like, oh, really? Yeah. Or tell me something more about that. But there would also be more statements like, well, that's not how I see it exactly. I'm thinking, and we would have a different, so I, I think that the way that I think I've gotten okay at thinking about the way people use texts in the world and in creating experiences to give kids practice in miniature in doing that um, in their reading and writing so that they could take on more sort of expert-like behaviors. So the, so the question for years, my friend Sheridan Blau and I have had a conversation about to what extent does that need to be taught and Sheridan's argument is that they'll that they'll be able to do it on my own. And mine is if if I know that this is what is going to be rewarding for students, why can't I oughtn't I create experiences to have them do that more more quickly and more efficiently than it would if they did it on their own? Did, did that make sense, Anthony? Yeah, very much. And would that would that mean possibly feeding them the language, feeding them the skill? Would it be creating the experience where, like, they might organically approximate that language and then maybe, like, you know, s delivering it from the teacher's point of view afterwards or a combination? It, it, it would almost always be working backwards from uh, from their activity to, to do some sort of naming. So let me give you let me give you a specific yeah. example that I'm interested in. So one of the things with some dismay, I realized that um, I was not thinking about char characterization as an important part of teaching literature, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I like, I think most teachers talked about characterization in terms of you notice these cues, these clues, and then it, you use these clues to make inference about a character and it added up in some ways to our understanding of the character. But in the world, that's not how we understand people. In the world, we get a general impression of people, and then we use the individuating based in some ways on their membership in different demographic groups. So people came to this interview, they, they're looking at me like, I'm, you know, I'm an old man, I'm, uh, if it's a high school teacher, you said he's a professor, well, he's an egghead, what does he know? So you make it, you make, a, or you get a feel for somebody, right? You get a feel for somebody, and then there's an interaction between what you, the overall impression that you're getting and the particular details that you notice that are either confirm or disconfirm that initial impression. So that's a pretty big difference, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so then, um, so I wrote an activity 
for, for students in which I said, <clears throat> and, you know, who would you rather have, which of these people would you, would you most like to have as a roommate? And then they would do a ranking activity. And then the conversation in the ranking activity, they would say, well, I would, I would want to, to have this person as a roommate because, and a couple of things would happen. They, they would articulate a criterion. So we also have typically a priori criteria about whether somebody is believable, admirable, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have those things. And, and then we, we have generalizations that we make about different groups of people. So one of them is, um, would you want to have a person roommate? And one of the details about the person is that they're a big Star Wars fan. Well, then somebody would say, well, Star Wars, you know, I, I'm not, or that they're a, an athlete or that they're, you know, a member of a different demographic group, right? So then mm -hmm. they'd make judgments about that. But then they would, there were also details that would say, yeah, but, and so then we would step back from this experience we just had and then sort of think about what it, think about what it is, what did we do? And then we start, we would start naming those ideas. So I would always work as a teacher, I would always try to work backwards. I would always try to work backwards from what I, um, with what students did. Anthony, can we pause it for one quick second? Sure, yeah. yeah. Th those were the very best type of, uh, of interruptions. It's a family call, right, right. dinner plans or whatever it might be. <laughs> Love hearing about people and their family stories. We might get into that, although we usually do that. Um, I have a couple questions going through my head as for, uh, to possibly connect back to the book, but you don't have to talk about the book. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering two things. One is, uh, can you can can this strategy of sort of using your gut instincts first and then revising your impression about a character based on like new information that comes in, rather than sort of building clues toward an impression? You know, it's like impression first, but then revise it. Can that strategy work in a way as far as like dealing with information pollution? or any other similar term. And then my second question is, can uh, unreliable narrator strategies for readers, can that also transfer? So these, these seem to be two very good uh, like literary reading techniques that can also apply very nicely. So do you think they can, number one? Number two, are there like Michael Smith type exercises that can be uh, used to sort of like set it up? Or are there other similar, or are there other exercises from the book, maybe one of which you'd want to talk about and like how it works? Well, I, I think the answer to that question is, I, I hope the answer to that question is yes. Um, mm. So let's let's take um, one of the things that we, that one of the chapters, and actually the, the primary author for that was Hugh, Hugh Kesson, who was a student of mine um, here at Temple. Yeah. He, he was interested, well, um, Jeff and I did some work we wrote a book called um, Diving Deep, which is about that one of the things experienced readers do is that they that they understand that there are conventional expectations that authors have for the stuff that we're going to notice. And that experienced readers, we know that we're supposed to notice in a literary text or in a, we're supposed to pay attention to titles, right? 
So in To Kill a Mockingbird, when there's a mockingbird, you, we know that you're supposed to pay attention to that. Um, in a, it's a convention that in a textbook, if something's italicized, we probably need to pay attention to that, right? So those, the way we distribute our attention, and this is based on an idea of Peter Rabinowitz's and before reading, we have those sort of a priori understandings that the kinds of things that authors do to get us to attend to things. So, and, and Peter calls them rules of notice and we call them rules of notice. So we, we talk in the, in Hughes chapter and some work he, he did based on Jeff's and my original work is that we talk about four different kinds of rules of notice. One is, um, one is uh, ruptures. So if, if we're reading text and there's long, lots of long paragraphs and there's a single sentence paragraph, we know as an experienced reader, we're supposed to pay attention to that, right? Um, we know that if there's, um, we know that if there are different typesets used, that's sort of a rupture. We know that we're supposed to pay, uh, that we're supposed to pay attention to that. Um, typically, certainly in, in literature, but whenever there's an explicit statement whenever there's a explicit thematic statement, a, a direct statement of generalization, we know as experienced readers, we're, we're supposed to pay attention to that. Um, if, if you see what I'm saying. We know, we call, um, we call a certain set of things calls to attention. Um, if there's what we call the reader's response, if there's emotional language. So we one of the things we have them do is we make, in a, we look at different kinds of texts and say, what are the different calls to attention? Why did, what did the writer, what did the creator do to draw your attention to that? And that would, so the idea that there are things that there are conventional understandings. Um, so on, on a digital text, right, those conventional understandings might be the, the buttons. They might be, we talk about, they might be the links, right? They might be, the, they might be the visuals. So we are called upon to read in a different kind of way. And, he, and here's where the transfer would be complicated because you don't use different colors in, in, in literature. Links are not a thing. Um, pictures tend not to be a thing. Mm -hmm. if, 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 you, if you see banners moving. So there are lots of things that happen in so we just try to raise their attention to let me understand what the maker of this text is doing to draw my attention to certain features of this text and then knowing that how do I feel about those things so that's um I think I mentioned last time we chatted maybe maybe not is that um I think that for, for literature you know the idea of threshold concepts yeah. Okay. So I think that the I think the threshold concept for literature is that literature is a made thing. That I have to understand that somebody made it, it's a function of choices that people made. Now that becomes more even that becomes more complicated in the digital text because the issue of authorship is way more complicated in the digital text. Because uh something might be posted, a blog might be is posted on a website. What's the relationship in of authorship between the the designer, you know, the website, 
the person whose name's on the blog. And then even to what extent the I would argue, or we argue that the reader of a digital text is much more author-like because you're not reading things linearly, right? You decide, I decide whether I'm going to click on a, the text that you would read and I, I or that with which you would engage and I would engage might be completely different. So to some extent, we're authors of our digital engagements by what we click and what we don't click. So anyway, but the idea, the big idea is, let's think about calls to attention. Let's think about direct statements. Let's think about ruptures. Let's think about, um, you know, response, things designed to cultivate an emotional response. And let's look to see how those play out in different kinds of texts. And then I, once I've done that, then I can decide what I want to do with those things. So, uh, but the big question is, what did the creators do to manipulate your attention? And how do you feel about that? Give you one, one example. Um, so one of we're working with juniors and seniors at a comprehensive high school in Philadelphia, and they're thinking about colleges. And um, the school that we're at is 90, over 90% black, um, black or brown students. And one of the kids, one of the students said, went to the, a college who, that he was interested in and, and he looked at the picture and he said, see, look at how diverse it is. And, and we said, let's, what did, what did the creator of the website <laughs> to make you think that? And then we did the, a big move that we say is let's check. So it turned out that there were 14% or something like that, people of, people of color at this, at this university, way more than the number that they had were put in the picture. Then, then we, then, then we have to do something with that. So then they make a judgment about how how he feels about that, that difference. Um, if you see what I'm saying. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting that the second move is the, how do you feel about that? It doesn't have to be that, but uh, that seems to be strategic, strategically placed second slot question. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah. Um, so this, this comes from, in some ways, the work that uh, the theorizing that Peter Rabinowitz and I did in, in authorizing readers. And the, um, you probably had this experience. Have you, have you been, ever been in a situation where somebody sort of nudged you and told a joke that made you uncomfortable? Sure. A, a sexist joke, maybe uh, something with, ra with racist over, well, you know, with the elections going on now, where somebody would say, well, that, that goes to show you what happened in Philadelphia. And I might understand that Philadelphia has yeah, yeah. racial overtones. So, but I'm in, but I have to understand what the person who does the nudging wanted me to think. And then my next step has to be, how do I feel about that? Do I want to resist that? That's why um, authorizing readers called resistance and respect in the teaching of literature. Interesting. So, so how do I feel about being, I guess the same thing would be, have you ever been to a movie where you know you're being manipulated? Yeah, you know how you're supposed to, you know, you, you know how you're supposed to feel, how you're meant to feel, and then you have to decide. Um, 
Well, I'm going to go for the ride or not. Yeah, and that could that could break the whole experience. And then it, it, that could yeah, and then that could impose on the uh, especially if it's some sort of fictional uh, world that could really interrupt it. Or you could just choose to go with it. But, or, or you but, could choose to go with it, and then upon and then later saying I chose to go with it, but upon reflection, that's not a place that I want to to, to go. Um, yeah, no, I, I meant just in general, like because it's. There's always some sort of persuasion anytime language is being used in a story setting and others. So it doesn't necessarily mean like negative manipulation. We're always being, you know, moved, directed, suggested in some way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think so part of the art is like getting developing an eye for that, maybe having your persuasion filter attuned and yet not losing an enjoyment. You know, not sort of a fine line between like overanalyzing. See, for 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 me, I I I intake almost all almost all public information. Um, I apply the persuasion filter almost like unconsciously as a default, and it's just like okay, I see what's being said here, but let's just look at it from the persuasion lens. And to what extent is that? Well, I guess you're right because the next question is, all right, how do I feel about it? How do I feel about that? And and I become very cynical all the time, often. And, uh, not always, but uh, just when you could see through the persuasion, it just well, I don't know. Well, you could say if we go back to the if we go back to the student, he might say he could say, well, they're trying to trick me into thinking it's more diverse than it is, or yeah. he could say, <laughs> you know, this does, and he did say this doesn't bother me. It shows yeah. that they're. It shows that they think that they believe in diversity. I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay to go going with a place where they're where they send such strong signals that this is a value that the institution has. So those are different yeah. ways of feeling about the same thing. But yeah. the important for us is recognizing that that was a choice that somebody made in order to, as you said, I mean, text every text is designed to act on us in some kind of way, and yeah. we just we want to be mindful of that. And then um, one of the things that we we work on in the that we try to do in, in the book is to think about text as part of an ongoing cultural conversation, so that if you it has a different sort of impact. If that's the only, if one text is the only text you read, it's different than if you recognize. Well, let me see what somebody somebody else has to say about that same at that same issue so that that's the the insight sam weinberg and his colleagues had at, at from this at stanford mm. is that what fact checkers do is that they read laterally right and so in a digital realm understanding how this text works and then seeing what other people say or think about the text that you're reading the author that you're reading i mean you've got at your an infinite amount of virtually infinite amount of information at your fingertips, what are you going to do with that in yeah. order to ascertain what your position could be um, about this particular text? Yeah, that makes sense. One of the one of the possible changes happening on, on Twitter, for example, amongst some that don't seem very good, one of them that I like is there's something called, uh, what's it called? I forget, but what it does is it adds additional context to tweets that are either like misleading or borderline. 
know, sometimes one person's misleading and somebody else's you know, accurate. So it's users get to add, okay, but check out this source. Okay, but check out this source. So it's in its infancy, but like, uh, it's just giving you like a little bit more three-dimensional view of things. And, and that's uh, not always easy to find organically. And, and I think emotionally, psychologically, whatever, it's, it's not for everybody to go looking for that sort of thing. And, and, and the reason, I, I'm so sorry, and the reason I bring that up is earlier you were saying something about like uh, uh, having some self-awareness and self-knowledge is one of the key strategies. Would you say that's in the realm of the threshold concept as far as like the new book goes? Um, I haven't thought about it in, in, in those terms, but the idea that, I, I, I guess I would say yes, because the idea that I am a, re I, with all my prejudices and preconceptions and susceptibilities, am implicated in this process is an important thing. They're not doing it to me. I'm doing it to me to some, mm -hmm. I mean, they are to some extent, but yeah. I, I'm implicated in this. And then, then I think what you have to do is cultivate some sort of, um, you know, if someone's willing to be, to go along for the ride without stop, without stopping, then there's nothing I, as a teacher that we can do what I guess all we can hope for is that for people to recognize, for our students to recognize that they are being, being pulled along for the ride and to, and then to cultivate some sort of ethical sensibilities that have them, have them stop. Now, one of the things that I'm interested in though, is that we, um, that, we're, that I've been thinking about is in, you would think that the persuasion lens would would always would be a good lens to work with. And one of the things I think we, we transfer as teachers, as, as ELA teachers, is that we think about many of the arguments that we write are interpretive arguments about literature, right? Mm -hmm. The issue that I'm starting to have with interpretive arguments about literature is in, is that the F, the, reason teachers say give textual evidence is that textual evidence is beyond dispute. So the evidence, the idea that you have to get evidence, but once you cite the evidence, then, I mean, the person said this or the writer wrote this. So the evidence itself is not in dispute. In the world, evidence is disputed. Sure. And so I don't, I think that we have to cultivate, we have to create circumstances where our students are readily evaluating, regularly evaluating the evidence that would help them make their arguments and not just say, well, you cite textual evidence, just say what what would be the things, what would be, we, we talk about it as what would create a safe starting point. So unless you're in an argument, unless you're, unless, if you're talking to somebody, you and I can't have a discussion unless we're willing to stipulate to some sort of shared understandings. Um, it's it's impossible. So yeah. so what we try to do is raise that awareness and then help them understand what are they willing to, under what circumstance are they willing to stipulate to something? Under what circumstance does one person's story should when should one person's when is one person's story sufficiently dramatic, representative, truth sounding mm -hmm. that we're willing to go, we're willing to count that as a safe starting point. And when aren't we, as an example? 
Yeah, that's an interesting phrase, safe starting point, because it's you know it's, it's certainly not the end of the end of the deal, but we can we could start here, right? We could we could deal with this, right? Because once we we still have to. That's all. That's often taken for granted. You know, like that step is often not consciously uh, enacted or pointed out. Or, or in public policy debates, I mean, as an as an example, um, the abortion debate. If if <laughs> if people could agree, if people could agree when life began. There would be a different set of conversations, but there's no starting point to that. Yeah. To, to that argument, I mean, there's there's no once the sides are not willing to stipulate. Yeah, and there's just a lot of talking past each other. So it, and, it, and twenty years, you know, I remember hearing you say something similar, differently, but at the same topic, how difficult it is to have any productive conversation about that specific topic of abortion, just because there's there's no. I, I guess that's a nice term, safe starting point, you know, where I agreed upon baseline or whatever. Yeah, it's just often talking past each other. I am going to uh, just pause for one second. So I'm going to just share a couple of things, not to ask you to read because it's it's uh, it's too much. But there are uh, a couple of different like models out there for describing fake news. This this was something. Eric Weinstein, he tried to he tried to jump on it early. This is something from uh, the Consilience Project, um, a really great article called "Misleading with Facts," and they break down these different approaches it's done or how you might do it. And then, lastly, this is way too much to read, but my point is, um, if you really wanted to understand facts, even individual facts, look at all that can be done. So this is really targeted for adults and a certain type of adult, I think, who's like very intense and, and has uh, great, you know, something is at stake for determining the value of something. When I look at this, I guess all these slides, I see something that's impossible for an individual to do. It can't be done, it's too much, it's overwhelming and, uh, that's why it has to be dealt with. I, I lost you there, Anthony. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was just saying, I don't think it could be done by an individual mind. I think some other approach has to be used. Because who can actually deal with something that's filled with various facts? And oftentimes, facts are used intentionally to mislead. But, but who could do this sort of vetting process? It's, if you can't do it on the fly, so it's too much for one mind. And, and that's why I think um, there's value in the individual developing skills, but um, it's not enough. So I, I don't have any major point or even answer or even real question. But I just wanted to see what you thought of that, that it's too much I, for I one person. I sort of think that, uh, um, I think a little bit of, about the notion of orientation so the orientation somebody takes to a task mm. so um an orientation that i could take to a task is that for me to recognize that i need to do a different kind of work under certain circumstances but i always am mindful of the fact 
that texts are working to act on me in particular kind of ways, right? So, um, so let, let's take that thing about, about, about facts. So one of, the th one of the activities that we have is to have people, to have our students evaluate what we think about questions in an instrument. How good is this instrument? Now, that's just one example, but, mm -hmm. you know, the, the <laughs> I can ask you a question to get you the answer, to get to the answer that um, that I would want. Would you rather rejoice in the in, in the Phillies' recent success or or be a curmudgeonly old fart who thinks that if you don't win anything, you haven't done anything at all? So mm -hmm. I've sort of framed that question as a way that, well, well, I'd rather rejoice. Who wants to be a sure. Yeah. Right. So, so if we, if, but if you get, if we, if we can get our students to understand that, then when it's important for them to understand, to say, well, let me look at the instrument. That's a, that's a thing that I would want them to do. They're not going to do it all the time, but to know that that's a move that they have in their repertoire when there's a context that it invo involves that. I need to find, so I'm going to do this lateral reading because this is a really important, I know I'm susceptible here. I'm going to do this lateral reading because this is, it's important for me to, I need to really, to, to, to really get this. I, I need to understand, um, look, this is a, this is a causal argument made from a correlation. This is an important issue to me. I need to think about that. I need to investigate that. So that's sort of what so we're, we're sort of trying to create these sorts of awarenesses to create an orientation of not jumping in too quick, being mindful that I'm being asked because the algorithm, I mean, that, that one thing in the first slide that you gave about the algorithmic orientation about how it's sort of the internet is meant to feed me my tribe. Yeah. Knowing that is an important, knowing right. that is an important thing. And then maybe that maybe in certain contexts then that i can stand against that if the occasion arises when that is something that i need that i want to do if that makes sense yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i, and I think it's also a way that a lot of people to not be so sad because you just have if you just have your antenna up for that you'll, you'll realize that so, so much of the you know the tribal algorithmic stuff is Designed to bring you down, and it doesn't mean a fair amount of it isn't true. But when you realize how much you're kind of getting bombarded with uh, information that's designed to activate you, right? You don't have to be so sad or worried all the, all the time. So I, that's my own take. I mean, that sort of like meta awareness that these things are going on. It, so it allows, me, it allows me to be a little bit less impulsive, a little less reactive, etc. Yeah, yeah. If you if you couple that sort of that's what I would call an orientation. If you okay. couple that sort of orientation to texts with some particular moves that you can make, mm -hmm. right? Then I think that's about as good as we can do. Yeah, and there's something and, to be said for that. So. Yeah, and, and we do it in contexts where we stand against that. So that's when we were talking last time. One of the things we were talking about creating curricular contexts in which multiple sustainable in which there are multiple sustainable positions. So in those cases, if in those cases, then 
that that creates a that creates an interesting arena to allow people to to listen and 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 trust because it's not just us against them right away. Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. Do any examples come to mind? Well, um, I mean, one of the things the what we're doing in the the, the college access prop that I was talking to you mm -hmm. about. And one of the one of the questions that we ask is, um, to what extent can we understand each other across demographic differences? Yeah. I mean, that's a complicated question, and that I think that there are multiple. I mean, some, yeah, uh, yeah, yes, to, yes, largely we're all human. No, there, no, I can never. I mean, my my daughter, who's African American, said, you know, I'm an adopted black woman i know you love me dad but you can't understand me so i mean her position was no it, it, you can't yeah. understand yeah i I've, i remember you saying that before has, has that position adjusted at all over time was that the start of the conversation or kind of the end uh it, it it's it, it's part of an, it's been part of an ongoing conversation it's becoming more um fruitful as time goes on yeah that's really interesting and yeah. and one thing i'm hearing is if you have a really interesting maybe uh essential or existential question sort of hovering over the work then that sort of lateral thinking or lateral reading or uh, position adopt you know even if it's role-playing position shifting it, it, it just happens a little more easily i think when it's underneath a uh, inquiry particularly if it's like a shared inquiry that, you know, yeah that I, I, involved in. that's what we think yeah that's what we think yeah that makes sense um so I wonder if there's a way to, uh, uh, to, to a method for dealing with information out in the world that could be confusing, so to speak. If there's a way to sort of hijack your own thoughts into creating an inquiry question, like creating an essential question as almost like a, uh, I don't know, like a personal relaxer that allows you to deal with this. Well, Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, it did. So actually, one of the things that I've I've written about is that if if there's a text that attracts you and you can s slow down to, uh, to understand what is it about the text that attracts you, there's probably an ongoing cultural conversation at the text, or there might be an ongoing cultural conversation in which the text is implicated. So, for example... I don't know if, if you if you see an item where somebody's in your you're feeling outraged because somebody sued somebody for mm -hmm. uh, somebody went to a McDonald's drive up window and spilled hot coffee on themselves and then they sued McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So if that attracts me. Then I might be thinking, well, the question, the underlying question is to what extent am I responsible for what happens to me? Right. And so so there are that's. And that's an, that's an interesting question. I mean, well, here here's an example. I just was reading the um, the letter to the editors in the New York Times either yesterday or this morning. One of the questions was the the Parkland killer, the the murder, um, and I've forgotten his name. But should he have gotten a death penalty? And somebody wrote saying, "Well, I mean, he, he it wasn't freely chosen on his part." There's fetal alcohol syndrome. So, to what extent? I mean, that raised the that that's a, that's an ongoing question of interest to me. And it was 
my younger daughter used to say whenever she lost something, she would say her my coat went missing. So she mm. would not right. So that that so that's an area of interest. And so if so that bigger question that's under underneath it, then you can you can say and, and if you think about it in sort of in conventional literary terms, then you can talk about bigger Thomas with as as a turn in cultural conversation about to what extent are people responsible for what happens to them or what they do? And then you can bring in around that to what extent, I mean, a, a, there are a variety of texts that I could bring in conversation, that I could put in conversation with each other that would raise that question. Then I have to treat them in a different kind of way because I know that they're sustaining a position, speaking from the perspective of, of a position that's been historically sustainable. And so we can, I, I think that creates sort of a different sort of um, atmosphere about texts. That's not atmosphere, yeah. but. No, it's not a bad word at all. I understand what you're saying. Makes sense. I'm going to, just because we have maybe two minutes left, and if we don't, then just tell me, but just, would, would you mind taking a stab at a quick definition? Of the bolded terms. Well, we talked maybe, maybe all of the like, just for like a sound bite definition. Okay, so the sound bite def. So the the idea. So the first one in the concept of transfer is that if you learn something in one situation, that knowledge, if and that knowledge is not going to be inert, then you need to apply it to some other situation, and the situations that you apply it to are either going to be are going to resemble each other, which would be near transfer, or they're going to be very different from each other, which would be far transfer. What I would want people to understand is that it doesn't happen. It's it's harder than it thinks, than you think, mm -hmm. and it doesn't happen. And that the further that you need to transfer, the more articulated an understanding you have to have about the thing that it is that you're transferring. Yes, thank you. The second one about text as intentional acts is that I, I, I would argue that, uh, as I think I said, we were, that the fundamental understanding people have to have about text is that somebody made, somebody's, somebody or somebody's made them, that they're the, that a text is not accidental, but rather is the result of choices that people made, that a person or people made in order to foster a particular sort of response. And that once I understand that, then I could then it helps me see well if if a, if a person did X, they must have wanted to have Y kind of response because if they wouldn't have wanted Y, they would have done this other thing. Um, so that so once I understand that that texts are not either accidental or inevitable, then I can understand. Then I could try to understand the moves that a maker is making in order to foster a particular kind of response. And then I can position then as a as a consumer, I can understand how do I feel about being positioned that way. Mm -hmm. Good. So I think we make a mistake. Text as a turn an ongoing cultural conversation. I think we make a mistake if we think about text as separate things. So as an English teacher, I to say I'm doing. Romeo and Juliet doesn't make sense to me, or I'm doing what do you, I'm doing this text X because texts 
are always part of an intertextual grid and the intertextual grid against which we understand text, I think is both a conceptual and a generic trajectory. So we read text as something and we read text to be about something, recognizing both of those things that there, there is a family, there are other texts that that relate to it in some kind of way. So we make a we make a mistake if we read text independent of that of the sort of conceptual and generic trajectory in which they are arrayed. Does I don't know. If generic was... generic meaning the the genre. The genre, genre generic. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yes. And threshold concepts the way I understand them, which is just are the, those concepts that are necessary for you to learn other concepts and that once you get them, it changes your attitude towards it irrevocably, irrevocably changes your understanding of the domain in which you're operating. So that's literature. So how many times have you had kids say, do you think that she really meant this, that the author really meant to do this? And the answer to that is yeah. Now that the author might not have conscious control, but might have. But texts are made things that they're a function that they're. I think that that's a key understanding in, in textual studies. Once we recognize that texts are made things, then we can understand the sign system that, or the signs that are being used and the ends to which they're being used. So that's what I got. That's pretty good. That's pretty good under the gun. Um, this was very, very fruitful, and uh, it, the only problem is that I'm aging and you're aging backwards, so that's a, it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> Next time I see you, I'm going to dye my hair, okay? All right. All right, thanks, man. I, I, yeah. I got to go get the gab. Yeah, you got it. Say hello, okay. please. Thank I you. I really enjoyed it, Anthony. Thanks. I'm thanks. glad to hear it. Same. It's, um, it's flattering to be asked. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Pleasure. Okay. okay. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.